What I'd like to do in the sermon today is to ask a couple of questions to get your mind working. <clears throat> I want to discuss a subject that will have an impact on your life, not only here and now, but in the future. <clears throat> I'd like to ask you the question, what is your attitude towards the law of God? What is your attitude towards the law of God? What happens in your mind and in your stomach when you hear God's law? Do you kind of relax and think positive thoughts, or does your stomach begin to churn? And does your mind want to run in a different direction? You know, I don't know what's going on in your stomach or in your brain. <clears throat> but if you would look carefully at what's going on, ask yourself another question. Will I be in the kingdom of God with the attitude that I have? Will I be in the kingdom of God with the attitude that I have towards God's law? Because some people have come to conclude that the law of God is a curse. We don't have to do it. It's something that limits us. It curtails our freedom. <clears throat> Do you view the law of God as a burden or as a blessing? Now, depending on how you were raised and what you were exposed to, if somebody kept hitting you over the head with the laws of God, your stomach is probably churning a little bit because you don't want to go back to that. You don't want to be part of that. However, if you've seen the laws of God modeled properly, if you've enjoyed the blessings of the laws of God, then you'll have a different perspective about the law of God. Ask another question. How does God view his law? I heard a minister in Church of God years ago say, God gave his laws to the Israelites to punish them. I almost fell out of my chair. But he actually said it. <clears throat> Where did he get such an idea? He didn't come up with it on his own. He got it somewhere. How does God view his laws? A blessing or a burden? What does the Bible reveal about the subject of the laws of God? What does God have to say about it? Did he give his laws to the Israelites to punish them? Or did he have a very different perspective when he gave those laws? I've entitled the sermon, God's Law is Burden or Blessing. God's Law is a Burden or a Blessing. Now, why would I talk about a subject like this? Because we all know God's Law is a Blessing, right? Well, not everybody believes that. <clears throat> Many of you have friends and relatives that used to follow the laws of God. But they have been liberated. And they look at the laws of God as something that's a curse. What happened? What happened in their minds? You know, the perspective on the law of God in the living church of God is different from mainstream Christianity. It's different from many of the churches in this world that profess to believe the teachings of Jesus Christ. The church that many of us were part of, the Worldwide Church of God, 
has basically adopted a mainstream approach to the law of God. And they are telling people that the laws of God have been done away. That they're a curse that we've been liberated from. What's the truth? Have we been deceived? Somebody else being deceived? What is the truth? What is the right approach? And does this matter? You know, there's several schools of thought, and I want to discuss one of those schools for just a little bit. It was illustrated by the sermon this man actually gave in Florida about 10 years ago, where all the changes were taking place. And he told that congregation about several hundred people there that day. He said, God gave his laws to the Israelites to punish them for their sins, to set them apart, to mark them. That was why he gave the laws to Israel. I want to read just a little bit from a book entitled The Liberation of the Worldwide Church of God by a man by the name of Michael Fazell. The the book has a number of quotes that uh, I think reflect Mr. Fazell's personal opinions and some mixed-up theology, as we will see. But I hear these things coming back in conversations I've had with people that they haven't really thought through what some of the statements are that are being made. The book is entitled The Liberation of the Worldwide Church of God. It's described as the spiritual journey of this person from the prison of soul-crippling legalism to the liberating joy and rest of eternal salvation. That's a mouthful. Were you involved at one time with a soul-crippling prison of legalism? Did you feel that way? Some people may have. I certainly didn't. It says legalism, the idea of following all these laws of God, imprisons its victims in a confounding dungeon. This is a very graphic prose. Of smug anxiety and self-satisfied frustration. What is self-satisfied frustration? (laughs) Kind of like an oxymoron. How can you be self-satisfied and frustrated at the same time? But it sounds good. He mentioned following rules does not produce a relationship of love. Following rules does not produce a relationship of love. And yet Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Follow my rules. If you love me, keep my commandments. That was what Jesus said. According to Jesus' teaching, if you love him, you will follow rules, the commandments of God. Mr. Fazell also says a relationship of love is based on knowing and loving a person, not on knowing and loving a set of rules. What did David say in the Psalms? Oh, how I love your set of rules. Oh, how I love your laws, my meditation all day long. Love does involve following commandments, following a way of life. Mr. Fazell mentions the worldwide church of God, as a result of the changes that took place, has discarded extraneous doctrinal debris. Extraneous doctrinal debris. The commandments of God, the Sabbath, the holy days, the dietary laws. 
says, legalism chokes the love out of relationships. He said, we just followed orders. Did you just follow orders? Or did you prove what was the will of God and you followed the will of God? His members were shackled by legalism. And they didn't know that they were accepted and loved by God. That may have been true in some cases. We do have to develop a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and a close relationship with God. It involves more than just following laws. So Jesus said, love your neighbors, not your principles. Now, if you love your neighbors, you're not going to steal from them. You're not going to kill them. You're not going to commit adultery with their wife or husband. If you love your neighbor, you will follow a set of rules, a set of guidelines. He says, Jesus is, not a pers- or Jesus is a person, not a rule book. But again, it was Jesus that said, if you love me, keep my commandments. This picture is one school of thought, that the commandments are bad, the commandments are uh, limitations on our freedom, a couple of scriptures are used extensively to support this idea that the law has been done away with, and they usually come out of Galatians or Ephesians. The rest of the Bible doesn't matter. It's what's in Galatians and Ephesians that's important. If you go to Galatians chapter <clears throat> 3. Just look at a couple of scriptures now, and then we'll come back to these. And again, if we don't understand some of these arguments, some of these ideas, you, know, you could be pulled off in a direction. It is not the direction to go. Because there are hundreds and thousands of people that used to sit here next to you that are not here. They believe they've been liberated. They don't have to follow these old covenant rules. In uh, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10, this is one of the scriptures that is used. For as many as are under, excuse me, for as many are of the works of the law are under a curse. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that does not continue in all the things that are written in the book of the law. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not a faith. But the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. See, we're not under that old law anymore. That's in the book. See, read it. It's there. And some people have read that and said, wow, don't have to do those things anymore. In uh, verse 13, we just read verse 13. In Ephesians chapter 2, another scripture that is usually taken out of context and quoted to justify a school of thought. Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 14 through 16. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, who has broken down the middle wall of division between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself a new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. The enmity of this law has been put to death. We don't have to follow these things. 
Now, these quotes <clears throat> picture an approach. They're used to support approach. If we get back to Galatians very quickly again. <clears throat> a couple of other scriptures that are used. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, it says, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. See, it was, it was added. It was just until Christ comes. And then it was all done away with. So we don't have to worry about these things anymore. This is the school of thought. Verse 8 of chapter 4 of Galatians. Paul says, But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those who by nature were not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I've labored in vain. <clears throat> and people are told, this is the Sabbath and this is the holy days and you're trying to go back and keep those things again that you were liberated from. Why are you doing that? I'm afraid for you. Is that what these verses are saying? Not really. But you read over them and it looks like they're saying something like that. My question again would be, where do these ideas come from? Maybe to use the word ideas is too complimentary. Where does this stuff come from? That the law has been done away with. That we don't have to do these things anymore. That we are free. Where do these ideas come from? You might find reading the book by Samuel Bakioki, the Seventh-day Adventist scholar. But he wrote a book entitled uh, from, uh, from Sabbath to Sunday. How... The Sabbath was changed to Sunday. What's interesting is Dr. Bakayoki got his doctor's degree from the Pontifical Gregorian Institute in Rome, the Catholic school. The book is basically his thesis. In essence, the Catholic Church has put its stamp of approval on what he said in here. And what's Mr. Bakke, what Dr. Bakayoki says is the Catholic Church changed the Sabbath to Sunday. And part of the reason was because of the anti-Semitism in the second and third centuries. That to be a Jew, to keep the Sabbath, to keep the holy days, to follow dietary laws was distasteful. I'm using a very mild term for most of the nations. They didn't want to be associated with anything Jewish. When a lot of Gentile Christians came into the early church, they did not want to be linked with anything that appeared to make them Jewish in the sense of keeping the Sabbath or keeping the holy days. And he actually brings out here and says it was the Catholic Church that sanctioned the change from the Sabbath to Sunday. He also indicates it was the Catholic Church that was behind establishing December 25th, the birthday of the Son, as the birthday of Jesus Christ. The priest read this and acknowledged that <laughs> what he was saying and still gave him a degree. This is history. This is there. And they don't refute it. They don't, they don't back away from those things. It also mentions that um, because of a lot of the prescriptions that the Roman emperors put on the Jews, if anybody kept the Sabbath, if they kept uh, the holy days, uh, they would lose their property. 
So if you were a Christian and you'd come into the, the, the early church, you didn't want to lose your property. You wanted to, they, they wanted to put distance between themselves and these so-called Jewish practices. And some of the arguments that came out and were used in the second and third centuries were some of the ones that uh, this minister talked about when he was in Florida. That God actually gave the Sabbath and circumcision and the holy days to the Israelites to punish them. Well, these were arguments. You don't read that in the Bible. But these were arguments developed almost 2,000 years ago that people that should have known better, ministers in the church of God, began propounding and teaching. Again, they're no longer with us, but they're still part of uh, the Worldwide Church of God organization. We need to understand where these ideas came from. We also need to understand what the Bible has to say. How does God view his laws? How does the Bible reveal that God views his laws? Did God give these laws to punish the Israelites? Yeah, I don't want to overwork that phrase, but this idea has been around for several thousand years that somehow the law is bad, the law is, is, is hurtful, the law is a curse. Let's notice some things about the law of God. And this school of thought is based on the scriptures, not on opinions, not on arguments, but on the scriptures. Let's ask ourselves, do we have this attitude towards the law of God that we read in the scriptures? Notice in Exodus, beginning there, Exodus chapter 19, where the setting for the giving of the law is described. And when you read through this, Hollywood could not do any better in creating a setting. The Israelites had come out of Egypt. They'd been delivered by God, protected from most of the plagues. They saw the Red Sea open up. Now they were gathered before Mount Sinai. They had seen all this stuff in previous weeks. In verse 4, it says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. In other words, I delivered you supernaturally from the greatest power in the face of the earth, where you had been slaves. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me, above all people, for the earth is mine. Doesn't sound like a curse. Sounds like they're being told you are going to be a special people if you obey me. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which I spoke to the children of Israel. And then it mentions uh, that they were to bathe themselves and that God was going to come down in verse 9. Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and believe you forever. They were to put a, a boundary around the edge of the mountain so the people wouldn't come up close to it whenever God was there on the mountain speaking to Moses. Verse 16, And it shall come to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of a trumpet was very loud, and the people were in the camp, people that were in the camp trembled. But this was the setting in which God gave his law. Thunders, lightnings, earth is beginning to shake. 
And people realized they were dealing with God. They weren't dealing with some human being. There was something powerful happening here. This was the setting, a very dramatic setting, an awesome setting, where people that heard the law, the Israelites, realized, wow, this is different. I don't want to mess with God. (laughs) It was designed this way to let them know God is powerful. And he was the one that said, I want you to obey me. But you can read down through the setting there in Genesis, or excuse me, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 18 and 19. <clears throat> it says, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings and the lightnings flashing and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us and we'll hear, but let God, don't let God speak with us lest we die. This was a sobering experience, an earth-shaking experience, literally. And Moses said to the people, Don't fear, for God has come to test you, that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. This, This is the God that says, Don't do these things. And he's going to back it up. God wanted to make an impression on their mind, which he obviously did. Now, was God trying to scare them? Was he going to punish them with these laws? Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. The Israelites agreed to obey God, but then they slipped backwards and didn't. Actually forgot what they were told, forgot their agreement. Wandered for 40 years into the wilderness. But just before they were to go into the promised land, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses reviewed some fundamentals with them, with the generation that was going to go into the land of Israel. Again, this was the attitude that he wanted to see. This is what he was promoting. Moses says in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, verse 1, And now, Israel, listen to the statutes and judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live, that your life will go well for you. That was the message. And that you can go in and possess the land which the Lord God uh, of your fathers is giving to you. In other words, here, take these laws and go in and possess the land and it'll go well with you. God wasn't punishing them. If we read the scriptures, if we listen to arguments, we come up with different ideas. You shall not add to the word that I command you. You shall not uh, take anything away from it. The Catholic Church has changed the number of the commandments. They've changed the day of worship. Nabakioki basically makes those statements in his book, and the Catholic Church gave him a degree. They didn't deny it. They didn't deny it. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take anything away from you, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Down in verse uh, 6. Therefore, be careful to observe them, that is, these commandments and these statutes, For this is your wisdom. This is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. There's something different about these people. It's their laws that set them apart. You might check a couple of different translations of this verse. It says, for this is your wisdom, or this will show your wisdom too the nations around you. God was giving them his laws to set them apart, to make them different. 
so that they would stand out and be an example to the world. He wasn't punishing them. (laughs) Those are just off-base, weird ideas. Verse 7, for what great nation, and this is what God wanted the other nations to say about the Israelites, for what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord uh, our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call on him, we can call on him at any time. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as in all the law which I set before you this day? God was saying, look, I'm going to give you something special, something totally unique that's going to set you apart from all the other nations of the earth. Nothing to be embarrassed about, nothing to run and hide from, but something that would be extremely beneficial. Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and to your grandchildren. It was pass these things on to the next generation. And then uh, warnings about uh, taking heed to yourself. Don't forget these things. Verse 40. Now, does this sound like a curse? You shall therefore keep his statutes and his commandments that I command you today, that it may go well with you. That things will go well with you and your children after you, and that you may prolong your days. In other words, that you'll live a long, happy, healthy life by keeping the commandments of God, that you may prolong your days in the land which your God is giving you for all time. Now, in case they didn't understand that, Moses repeated it. (laughs) Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Now, does this sound like a curse? Does it sound like punishment? Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. You are going to experience blessings. You're going to reap rewards for keeping the laws of God, following the commandments of God. Therefore, O Israel, be careful and observe it, that, you, that it may be well with you, and that you may greatly multiply, or may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Well, how do you do that? By just keeping the commandments that God had given them. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk to them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and as frontless between your eyes. In other words, internalize these things. Make them part of your your approach, part of your uh, perspective on life, part of your action and part of your attitudes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house. It's interesting. Today... Judges are making decisions in the United States that it's illegal to put the Ten Commandments on the laws of, on the walls of the courthouse. And God said, do these things. Don't forget them. Keep them in front of your eyes. <clears throat> Chapter 7, verse 6. 
says, for you are a holy people. In other words, a special people. To the Lord your God, the Lord God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than the other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, because, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God. He is the one. Verse 11 then says, Therefore you shall keep the commandments and statutes and judgments which I command you this day to observe. So you're going to be blessed, God says, if you keep the commandments and follow the laws of God. Some people have been told that you know the tithing is a burden and the feast is, 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 is difficult to keep. Notice what... Uh, Moses told the Israelites, chapter 14, he talks about tithing. He said, you shall shoot, verse 22, you shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. And you shall eat it before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide. In other words, you turn it into money and then you can consume it. Is that punishment? Take a tenth of your income, go to the feast. Have a nice steak or whatever it is that you like to eat. It's not exactly punishment unless you overeat. (laughs) Then you're punished by the consequences. Down in verse 26, notice the punishment here. You shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires. What a terrible curse. (laughs) What does your heart desire to keep the feast? God says, here, I want you to have that experience. For oxen, sheep, wine, similar drink, for whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice. What a burden. You're commanded to rejoice. Some people have gotten totally off base. If if we forget what the Scriptures say and listen to arguments and reasonings, uh, we, we really get messed up. But God says, look, take your tithe, go to the feast, spend it for whatsoever your heart desires, and rejoice. And I've used this example before. I think whenever we were traveling to Europe the first time for the feast, we were living in a graduate ghetto in Pasadena. Where everybody, students were living and couldn't afford anything else. And this one guy said, where are you going? I said, we're going to be going for a week or so. We're going to be going to away for a couple of weeks. Would you watch our apartment? He said, where are you going? I said, we're going to Europe. And I saw his face sink. Because he knew that he couldn't afford it. And we couldn't have either if we hadn't been saving our tithe. I said, it's part of our religion. It just blew his mind. (laughs) God gives us a way of life that is a way of blessing. It's, It's exciting. It's the picture of the coming kingdom of God. Notice some other scriptures. Again, we're using the Bible as our guide. Turn to Psalm chapter 119. I'd encourage you to sit down when you go home tonight or maybe tomorrow in a Bible study. Just sit and think and read. But this was David's attitude towards the law of God. David is going to be the king over all the Israelite tribes in the coming kingdom of God. This is the attitude that David had. Psalm 119. 
beginning in verse 1, and we'll just skip down through the psalm very quickly. But notice the attitude that David had towards the law of God. And ask yourself, is this yours? Or could it be? Blessed are the undefiled, or blessed are the blameless in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed to be envied. Special people. Blessed are the undefiled or blameless in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who keep him, who seek him with a whole heart. Down in verse 12, blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. David wasn't arguing with God. Well, I don't think it means that. Here's what I think. No, he said, teach me, show me. Show me what this means. Verse 16, I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. David said, your law is a delight. Verse 18, and I like this one. It says, open my eyes that I may see the wondrous things from your law. Show me what is there. Show me how that applies. David wasn't trying to get out from under it. He was trying to live it. Incorporated in his life. Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts. So shall I meditate on your wondrous works. Help me understand. Explain to me. Verse 33, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in the paths of your commandments. You know, point me in the right direction and kind of give me a push from time to time. David, his attitude was anything but trying to get out from under the laws of God. Verse 97, David says, Oh, how I love your law. And Mr. Fazell was saying, Jesus is a person. You need to love him, not, not a set of laws. David said, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all day. I think about it. I think it was George Washington said, It's impossible to rule a nation without the Bible. You know, he understood the importance of Scripture. He was also a politician. <laughs> But he's saying here, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all day long. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies. He didn't view it as a curse. You can read down through there. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It shows me how to live life. That was the attitude of David. Verse 110, the wicked have, a, have laid a snare for me. And that's really what has been laid for many of the people that were part of the church of God. They put their foot in a snare. And they got their minds messed up listening to some of the arguments. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not strayed from your precepts. I have not changed. I have not compromised. I have stayed focused on a target. Your testimonies have taken, uh, I have taken as a heritage forever. Verse 127. Therefore, I love your commandments more than gold, yes, than fine gold. This was David's attitude towards the law of God. Verse 142. I mean, it's hard to escape David's attitude. The whole psalm is about the law of God. 142. Your righteousness 
is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. It explains what is right. It explains what is wrong. Trouble and anguish have overtaken me, yet your commandments are my delights. Verse 151, you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Verse 160, the entirety of your word is truth. I've used a quote from some Catholic uh, priests in England and Ireland where they said that, oh, we, we like the Bible. Uh, it's just not trustworthy whenever you look at history and science and things like that. But we, we like the Bible. Yeah, that's, that's baloney. <laughs> it's talking out of both sides of your mouth. And the Bible is true. And Dr. Fall is here. You know, the more I think that we have looked into the scriptures coming from, you know, a kind of a medical science background, it's incredible. The applications of those scriptures and how they apply and how they prevent many of the diseases today that people have because they have been liberated from these terrible laws. <clears throat> the entirety of your word is true and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Great peace have those who love your law, verse 165, and nothing causes them to stumble. <clears throat> verse 172, and this probably should put a big circle around this and memorize it. My tongue shall speak your word, for your commandments are righteousness. When you see the word righteousness in the scriptures, should, lights should come on automatically. All thy commandments are righteousness. The Bible talks about righteousness. It's talking about people living by the commandments of God. I long for salvation, verse 174, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Not a curse, not a plague, but David said it was a delight. Okay, these are all Old Testament scriptures. These are all part of the Old Covenant. So this has all been done away with. When Christ came, he changed everything, right? What do you say in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount? <clears throat> this is what some people are told today. Well, Christ came. He kept the commandments for you. You find that in the scripture. You see, people are told that. He kept it for you. You can't keep it because you're not perfect. But Christ was perfect, so he kept the law for you. He came, did away with all these old uh, unnecessary uh, doctrinal debris that kind of clutter up the Bible. But notice what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm preaching to the choir here for the most part. You know these things. But how many people have forgotten them? Jesus said, I did not, don't think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Yes, he fulfilled them, so we don't have to do it. Is that what it means? <laughs> no, check the other translations. Number of words here. It says, I did not come to destroy, and you could look the translations up here, uh, abolish, abrogate, undo, annul. I didn't come to do any of those things, he said. But I came to fulfill or complete or fill to the full. And then you can read over in beginning verse 21. How did he fulfill it? How did he complete it? In the Old Testament, we have the Letter of the law, you can't kill. But in the New Testament, Jesus was emphasizing there's also a spiritual dimension to that law. Harboring thoughts. I don't like you. 
I'm going to get even with you. You're a jerk. Harboring those kinds of thoughts. You've heard it was said to those of old, you should not murder. And whoever murders shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with a brother without a cause, you're just acting on a rumor, shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever calls says to his brother, you're an idiot, is breaking the spirit of the law. This is how he came to amplify it, to complete it. You might want to jot down in your notes, Isaiah 42, verse 21. It's a prophecy about Jesus Christ. said he would come and magnify the law, expand its coverage, not just in the letter, but in the spirit. Jesus did not come to do away with the laws of God. Notice a couple of other scriptures in Matthew chapter 7. And this is going to be fulfilled prophetically one of these days, and some people are going to be very surprised. Jesus said towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and again, he's summarizing basic Christianity here, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everybody that prays to me shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he or she who does the will of my Father in heaven, one who actually <laughs> obeys my commandments, follows my instructions, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Put a radio program or television program out, talked about prophecy. Have we not cast out demons in your name, actually done some miracles, and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. We never talked. We weren't on the same wavelength. You never got the big picture. Depart from me, you who practice what? Lawlessness. You didn't think the commandments were important. You listened to somebody telling you those things. And you followed them. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, did God, or did Christ come and do away with the commandments? Let's look at another scripture, Matthew 19. Many mainstream churches have this, or this, this perspective that Jesus only gave us two commandments. It's to love God and love our neighbor. As long as we're fine, as long as we're good to people, that's okay. Did Jesus only give us two? You know better. What did he say to the rich young man or the rich young ruler that came to him? <clears throat> Matthew 19, verse 16. Now uh, behold, one came to him saying, Good teacher, what uh, good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? How can, I, how can I get eternal life? The question was. So I said to him, Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. But if you want to enter into life, if you want eternal life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And then Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you, by doing these things you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So here was Jesus pointing right back to the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> In Matthew 23, the scripture about uh, the two great commandments <clears throat> has got to be understood in the light of what we just read. Some people say, well, Christ only gave us two commandments, so therefore we only have to worry about two. And yet he just said, if you love your neighbor, you will not commit adultery, you will not murder, even in the letter and in the spirit. 
So we've got to understand what is being said here in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 36, uh, in the light of what we just read. This lawyer comes and says, Teacher, what is the great command of the law? Jesus said, You shall love Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Again, we read that in Deuteronomy. And it was stated there in the context of obeying the commandments of God. The second is like unto it, love your neighbor. Now Jesus said, the way you love your neighbor is that you follow the last six commandments. You don't steal from them. You don't uh, lie about them. You don't commit adultery with them. Uh, You don't do those things. Especially with your parents, you honor your parents because they're probably your closest neighbor. So these are, these are the test commandments there. If, if you're going to obey God, you'll be doing those things. On these two commandments hang all the law. You get a bunch of hangers in your closet. <laughs> and they all hang on a rod. And that rod is really what holds up everything else. So Jesus is explaining here what he meant, but theologians down through the years have twisted these statements because they didn't want to obey the laws of God. And we'll look at some of those quotes in just a little bit. Jesus also said in John chapter 14, that he just give us two commandments. What did he mean? Did he do away with commandments? Again, you know the answer to these things, but we're reviewing these things because so many people have forgotten. And we are going to be involved one of these days in turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and turning people back to the truth and explaining the truth to people and explaining how they got off track. John 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. There's a list of rules, unfortunately, that go along with this, that explain how you love God. You don't take his name in vain. You remember his Sabbath. You rejoice in it. You keep the holy days. If you love me, keep my commandments. And he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. In other words, the Holy Spirit will come to those. didn't put this in my notes, but in Acts 5.32, God gives his spirit to whom? Those who obey him. You can't kid yourself as well. You know, I don't need to keep the Sabbath and I don't need to keep the holy days and then expect to have God's spirit. It's going to die inside because it's not being nourished. And then you'll lose the understanding that you once had, which is happening to people today. You talk to people and say, well, I'm going to the feast. Oh, yeah, is that coming again? <laughs> I forgot all about that. That's what happens when we forget the commandments of God and drift away from the laws of God. In 1 John, towards the end of the Bible, several scriptures. First John chapter 2. John is writing at a later period in his life, but this concept was still on his mind. John chapter 2. Beginning in verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him. And this is the basic Protestant approach. Do you know the Lord? Have you given your heart to the Lord? Do you know Jesus? Well, here's John's answer. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments. 
He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But whoever keeps his word, truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. If we go to 1 John chapter 5. Again, God repeats in the scriptures what's important. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Now the title of the sermon. The law of God is a blessing or a burden? Some people are trying to make it out as a burden. And yet the Bible actually says it's not a burden. It's actually a blessing. So do we believe the scriptures? Or do we believe arguments that people generate that have ulterior motives that have been influenced by theologians that jumped a track several thousand years ago? 1 John 3, 4. Again, Mr. Fizell makes a statement. He says, we should be for the gospel, not against sin. Think about that one. Yes, we should be for the gospel, but are you for sin? These things just don't make sense. We've got to be for the gospel and against sin. You know, are you for sin or against it? Be, be serious. No, we've got to be against sin. We've got to explain what sin is. You know, that was part of the role of the prophets was to explain where the nation is going and why they're going that way and what's going to happen when they get there. And you explain that out of love. If you see somebody roaring out of the the parking lot here going 100 miles an hour and then you don't tell them there's a bend right down here, do you love them? Well, I didn't want to hurt their feelings. Well, they just smashed up their car and they're barely alive. I didn't want to hurt their feelings. I didn't want to ruin their day. No, we've got to explain what the consequences of sin is or are. And we've got to explain what sin is because today many people don't believe that there's a real devil or that sin actually exists. First <clears throat> John 3, 4, John explains what sin is. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, or as the older King James says, sin is the transgression of the law. It's a sin when we break the laws of God. However, if we do away with the laws of God, then there's no sin. And you can't feel guilty. That seems to be the approach today. We don't want people to feel guilty, so let's kind of erase the law of God or water it down so that nobody has a guilty conscience. You know, guilty conscience is not wrong to have. It can be motivated to change so you don't feel guilty anymore. But John defines what sin is. Sin is breaking the laws of God. You know, there's a joke that I heard when this lady goes into a post office. She says, I, I, I want to send uh, this box. The guy said, what's in it? Well, it's just a Bible. He said, was there anything breakable in there? And the lady says, the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Many people don't believe that it's, it's a problem to break the commandments. Well, I just have a different feeling about those things. 
No, we've got to understand what sin is and understand that there are consequences that come from breaking the laws of God. Let's go finally to uh, Revelation chapter 21. Now, we're at the very end of the book, and we find the same message there that we found in Exodus. In Revelation chapter 21, start in verse 7. He who overcomes, overcome what? Well, you overcome sin and temptations. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. There's going to be a reward for overcoming. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. But notice in verse 8, but the cowardly, people who don't want to take a stand, unbelieving, who don't believe what the Bible actually says, the abominable, Murderers, so if you're breaking the commandment of not uh, killing, then you fall into that category. Sexually immoral, adulterers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and the commandments all are against these things. And all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There will be consequences that we read about in the book of Revelation, right at the end of the book. And if people are breaking the laws of God, then this is what they have to look forward to. And out of love, we want to explain to people, is that really what you want? If you don't want that, then don't break the laws of God. Let's go one more chapter. We're getting again at the end of the book. What's the message that we find? Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 through 15. Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me, Jesus Christ is saying, to give to everyone according to his work. Works are important. Have the wrong ones, we'll get something we don't want. Have the right ones, we'll get a proper reward. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do what? Blessed are those who keep his commandments. that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. This is what the book says about the laws of God. They're important. There are consequences for breaking those laws. There are blessings for following those laws. What about Paul? Why did he say if you're under the law, you're under a curse? What did he mean? Did Paul have a thing with the law of God? Was he upset over the law of God? Let's look quickly at the book of Romans. And if you've not done this, you might want to jot the scriptures down and mark them in your Bible or put uh, circles around the verses. What does Paul have to say about the law? What does he reveal about the law? Romans 2 verse 13. Romans 2 and verse 13 says, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. It's not just hearing it and agreeing with it. It's actually doing it. So there are things we have to do. Verse 18. I'm starting verse 17 to pick up the thought. Indeed, you are called a Jew. He's writing to some Jewish people here. 
and the rest of, and, and you rest in the law and make your boast in God, but know and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. In other words, we should be instructed out of the law. The law explains what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false, what we should do, what we should not do. But again, it's our choice whether to follow those instructions. And then we have to reap the consequences. We'll enjoy the benefits if we obey, and we'll reap the consequences if we don't. Chapter 3 and verse 20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh is justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. In other words, it's from the law that we learn what sin is. Now, if somebody doesn't explain it to us, then we don't know. But God wants us to benefit by learning what sin is. Chapter 3, verse 31. It says, Then do we make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So faith actually establishes the law, understanding who gave it, why he gave it, why we need to obey the law. If we actually believe God is the author, then we'll do it. Romans 6.16, we're just skipping through here, noticing what Paul has to say about the law, and these are not negative things. Uh, Verse 15, he says, What then shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. A sin is a transgression of the law. So if we're not under the law, he's talking here about the penalty of the law. That penalty has been lifted, but we are still to obey the law of God. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness? In other words, if we're breaking the law, we're going to be a slave to sin. If we're obeying the laws of God, we're going to be a slave to righteousness. Verse 18, and having been set free from sin, you become the slaves of righteousness. You might jot in your notes there, Psalm 119, verse 172. If you're a slave to righteousness, you're going to be obeying the laws of God. And you're set free from sin then if you're not uh, breaking the laws of God. Chapter 7, verse 12. says, therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. So Paul is not against the law. Paul understood the purpose of the law. Why have uh, theologians down through the ages argued to do away with the law of God? Paul reveals in Romans chapter 8 and verse 7 what drives people that they don't understand today. It says, The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. It's our carnal human nature that doesn't want to be told what to do, even if it's the right thing to do, even if you're a theologian. You don't want to be told what to do. You just want to do what you want to do. Well, I just want to love God my way. We need to understand these things. The Bible tells us an awful lot about the law of God and why people don't like to follow the laws of God. Let's jump quickly then to uh, Galatians. 
because this is where people got tangled up today, and mainstream the, uh, theologians are off base on most of these scriptures. The issue in the book of Galatians is circumcision, the rituals that uh, some of the Judaizing people wanted to have new Christians follow. You can begin to pick this up in Galatians chapter 2, uh, verse 3. Paul mentions that, Yet not even Titus, who was with me being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So he's talking about that particular issue. Down in verse uh, 15, 16, says, We who are Jews by nature and are not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith in Jesus Christ. To be justified means to have your sins forgiven. Keeping the law doesn't forgive our sins, but the death of Jesus Christ does. Again, this term works of the law, and I think the New King James probably has a slightly different phrase. The New King James would have this, but some of the other translations talk about something slightly different. But in the King James, the term works of the law it was written up in an article in Biblical Archaeological Review, November, December, 1994, that this term, works of the law, refers to ritualistic precepts. It's not talking about the Ten Commandments. It's talking about rituals. You've got to cook your meat in a certain uh, <clears throat> set of uh, pots and pans. Uh, you've got to go through certain ceremonial actions. This is what it's talking about. It's not talking about the commandments of God, the Ten Commandments. And this works of the law is used here in verse 16. <clears throat> it's used in verse 2 of chapter 3. Now, is this, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And again, the works of the law here are ceremonial things that they were doing. These were Judaizing people basically telling Christians, well, you can't be in the kingdom of God unless you're circumcised, unless you cook your food in certain pots and pans and unless you have certain ceremonial washings. And Paul is saying, they're off base. It's not what the, it's all about. Verse 5, same thing. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Again, as a, as a result of a lot of rituals, are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that does not continue in all the things that are written in the book of the law. But that no one is justified by the law. Again, what Paul is talking about here is the, the rituals. Down in verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. So this is what Paul is talking about. In verse 19, it says, What purpose does the law serve? It was added because of transgression. Well, what, what was added was it the Ten Commandments? If we let the Bible define what it's talking about, it's not talking about the Ten Commandments. Notice a couple of scriptures. And notice what was added. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 22. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 22. Now Deuteronomy chapter 5 is where the Ten Commandments are listed. This was reviewed with the Israelites just before they went into the promised land. So 
but Moses is putting them back to the basics. <clears throat> you can look in your Bible there, chapter 5, most all of it up through the first 22 verses. It's all talking about the Ten Commandments, about keeping the Sabbath, the Holy, uh, honoring your father and mother, and so on. In verse 22, these words the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain from the midst of the fire and the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. In other words, he spoke the commandments of God, and he didn't add a lot more to that. And he wrote them on two tablets and gave them to me. So the Ten Commandments were not something that was added later because of transgressions. We go to Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 22. Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 22. Another perspective as to what was added. <clears throat> Jeremiah 7, verse 22. It says, For I did not speak to your fathers, nor command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. These were not part of the Ten Commandments. They were added later. In... Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Actually, if you'd start uh, in verse 1, just to notice the flow. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances and of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. Talking about the, the tabernacle and then later the temple. Talks about an altar... Uh, and so on. Verse 6, Now when these things had been prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part of the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood. In other words, they had to have a sacrifice before he went in there. Verse 8, The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic, the first tabernacle, for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerning on, concerned only with, that is the first tabernacle, was concerned only with food and drinks, with various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation, in other words, until Christ would come. You can read through the rest of that chapter and talks about how important the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was that did away with the need for sacrifices. And some would say, well, the food and drink offerings here or the food and drink is clean and unclean foods and so on. But that's, that's to read something in that is not there. You might just jot in your margin numbers, chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, where it talks about food and drink offerings. Were there until Christ would come and make his sacrifice, doing away with the necessity for these things. But this is where Paul was coming from. He was talking about in Galatians, <clears throat> rituals that involved circumcision, that involved other things. He was not talking about the Ten Commandments being a curse. One of the things I'd like to look at as we bring this to a conclusion, I realize we could go on for longer, but uh, you know the brain can only in 
uh, absorb what the bottom can endure. <laughs> this tends to be kind of technical, and yet these things are important to understand because if we don't understand them, we'll get messed up and pulled off course. Is there a value to keeping the laws of God? Is there a value to keeping the laws of God? <clears throat> of what benefit is there to keep the laws of God? It's interesting, <clears throat> Edward Gibbon, English historian, about 1800, makes some very interesting comments about the early church. He mentions that the, I think he's quoting Eusebius, who was a writer about 300 A.D. He was also a friend of Constantine. But uh, <clears throat> Eusebius makes a comment, and I think uh, is repeated by Gibbon, that the first 15 bishops of Jerusalem were circumcised Jews. Now, why is that important? Because when you read in 1 Thessalonians 2.14, Paul talks about the church in the Thessalonica should look to Jerusalem as an example. He said, look to Jerusalem, follow their example. The church in Jerusalem, the first 15 bishops were circumcised Jews. They followed the Sabbath. They kept the holy days. They regarded the laws of God as extremely important. They didn't compromise them. It wasn't until you had Gentile Christians coming into the church that things began to change. When the church fled from Jerusalem in 70 AD to Pella and then came back a number of years later, they'd elected a Gentile bishop in order to gain admittance to Jerusalem. And I believe it's Gibbon makes comments along this line that they they then uh, basically kind of gave up keeping the Sabbath and keeping the holy days in order to gain admittance to what was then a Roman colony city there in Jerusalem that had been built on the ashes of Jerusalem. So these changes began to take place after the fall of uh, Jerusalem in 70 AD and over the next 100 years or so became commonplace uh, in much of what was called Christendom Eusebius makes an interesting comment about the impact of the laws of God. Now, he's writing about 300 A.D. Uh, Constantine had been, quote, unquote, converted. And uh, Eusebius is, is his friend. So he's touting the benefits of Christianity. But Eusebius makes this comment. Uh, God bestowed through the prophets Moses uh, images and symbols of a mythical Sabbath and of circumcision and instruction in other spiritual principles. Their law, talking about the laws of the Jews, or basically the laws of Israel, became famous and like a fragrant breeze penetrated every corner of the world. From the Jews, actually from the Israelites, uh, the movement spread, and soon the characters of most heathen races began to grow gentler. Thanks to the law givers and thinkers in every land, savage and cruel brutality changed to mildness, so that uh, profound peace, again under Constantine, uh, friendship and easy intercourse were enjoyed. But what he's pointing out is that as the laws of the Bible began to influence the laws of other nations, things began to change. 
for the better. Now, Eusebius makes this observation 300 A.D. Uh, <clears throat> there's an article in the paper a couple of weeks ago asking why do some nations grow and others stagnate? And this comes from a book entitled A Farewell to Alms, not arms, but alms, A Brief Economic History of the World. This particular writer is saying, is asking the question, why is North America richer than South America? Why is Africa poor and Europe wealthy? He also asks the question, why did the Industrial Revolution start in England? of all places. What distinguished England, he said, was the widespread emergence of a middle class, of middle class values, of patience, hard work, ingenuity, innovativeness, and education that flavored, that favored economic growth. Essentially what he's saying is cultural values are extremely important in why nations, why some nations grow and some nations don't. Again, why did the Industrial Revolution begin in England and not China or some other place? England was a Christian nation. It was also a Protestant nation. The values that he's talking about here, patience, hard work, ingenuity, inventiveness, innovativeness, education, used to be called part of the Protestant ethic. Used to be called part of the Protestant ethic. Today they're just called values. Uh, I heard a lecturer at Harvard University a number of years ago talking about why South America has not developed and why North America did develop. This guy was a State Department employee. He was not an academic, but he'd taken a sabbatical, wrote a book, bought the book, and I've lost it in my library someplace. But his conclusion was religion has played a major role in why South America did not develop and North America did. Religion. What is the religion of most South American countries? It's Roman Catholic. The religion of North America has been Protestant. He brought this out very gently, but it was very pointed in what he was saying. He said, religion is important. He was saying that probably 10 years ago when I heard the lecture. This fellow has just written a book saying virtually the same thing. He doesn't say much about religion. He just calls it values are extremely important. You know, the reason that America has been blessed is because we followed a way of life since the inception of our nation that was basically built on Christian values. Those values are being challenged today. There was another article in the paper talking about a new ugly vision seeks to replace that of the founding fathers. So the founding fathers basically understood that religion was extremely important in guiding a nation. He said what is happening today is a new ugly division or ugly vision of America, of same-sex marriages, that values aren't important, that you can create your own values. He said, uh, we've got to fight for what we know is right. And yet, in today's world, if you stand up and say something uh, dogmatic, you're a bigot, you're biased, 
that you're narrow-minded. That's what the world thinks of the laws of God today. These things are not just academic ideas that we're talking about. We're talking about the future of our nation, the future of basically the Western world. Unless we develop a real love for the laws of God, a profound respect for the commandments of God, and develop the same attitude that David had, teach me your commandments, show me the way. Oh, how I love your law. Your law is a a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Unless we develop that attitude and that perspective, I think we're kidding ourselves that we're going to be in the kingdom of God to reign with Jesus Christ or to rule with David. If we're not in the same wavelength as he was, and he was called a man after God's own heart, then we're probably kidding ourselves. These things are profoundly important. That's one of the reasons, I think, why God shook the ground around Mount Sinai and had this big thundercloud and the lightning and the earthquake and everything else. He wanted to impress them. These laws are extremely important. You will be blessed if you follow these laws. And there will be consequences if we don't. This Thanksgiving weekend, it might be good to just sit back and think a little bit. Am I profoundly thankful for both the law of God and the spirit of God that enables us to begin to understand the importance of the laws of God? You can read in Isaiah chapter 2 that the law is going to go forth from Jerusalem. The law will go forth from Jerusalem. And Isaiah 30, verses 20 and 21 says, uh, people will see their teachers. And they're going to say, this is the way. This really is the way. There is such a thing as right and wrong. And if you'll follow the right, you're going to be blessed. If you choose the wrong way, there will be consequences. Those teachers are going to have to be very confident in what they're saying. They're going to have to say it very powerfully in a very convincing way, based on their experience that they work. This is what we've been called to do, is to not only love the law of God, but to convey that again to the peoples of the world. 